Good afternoon. It's Friday the 14th of uh, January 2022. It's now nine minutes past one o'clock. Apologies for the slight problems there. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Uh, well, let's get straight into one of the most important headlines I think we've ever had up. Um, the Mail is the uh, reporting agency, but of course they're not doing it properly. Let's have a look at what they say. Ministers have used propagandistic tactics to scare public into complying with COVID rules. Founder of Number 10's nudge unit claims. And the subheadline goes on to say Simon Ruder suggested there'd been an overemphasis on modelling and data. Not enough diversity, apparently, Mike, in number 10 scientific ranks to challenge advice. And he described the use of fear as uh, egregious and warned of long-term consequences. Um, but I don't think that the uh, writer Connor Boyd, the deputy health editor, sorry, the deputy health editor for the Mail Online, really knew what he was writing about in this uh, sub in this article because there was so much that should have been said and wasn't. But let's just focus on the man they're talking about, Simon Ruder. Now, if you go to the Behavioural Insights team, you can find this gentleman. It says he's the Senior Director, Home Affairs and International Programmes. But you notice something strange because here's the organisation, the Behavioural Insights team. And yet under his uh, picture here, it says he formerly worked at BIT. And I think what this is uh, to do with is the fact that he's re he's referring that he formerly worked alongside the uh, cabinet office um, with the behavioural insights team when effectively it was embedded in government. And very few people knew this was the case, mm. but the behavioural insights team was then spun off from government to become a um, a social um, forgotten the exact term a social something company. Yeah and um, is now there as a profit-based company selling its wares, as we all sort of see a little bit more. So let's come on to the key statements that were made in this article. Uh, he said that the fear, that he's talking about the government-driven COVID fear, seems to have subsequently driven policy decisions in a worrying feedback loop. Now, that's quite a statement in itself. You induce fear in the population, the population reacts, and then the government feeds off that reaction to drive more of the same. Isn't that a problem reaction solution? Uh, very much so, Mike, very much so. So he goes on to say, in his mind, the most egregious and far-reaching mistake made in responding to the pandemic has been the level of fear willingly conveyed on the public. And what I want to emphasize here is, of course, now the spin is already coming into the statements because this was just a this was just an unfortunate mistake, Mike. Nobody really knew what they were doing. Um, and it was just a, a level of fear that somehow was was willingly conveyed on on the public. So very blurred language. He's not really spelling out the sheer horror of what the British government has done to the public in this country. But nevertheless, we're now getting truth coming up to the surface. Uh, he went on, he says, dis, uh, deploying nudge tactics during the pandemic may have amounted uh, to state sanctioned uh, propaganda. So this is the use of applied political psychology. The base document the UK column has referred to many times is this mind space document. But now we're seeing that what the government's really up to here is bringing in propaganda, the use of psychology to drive propaganda to make people fearful. And of course, what is the effect of making people fearful? You make them anxious, you put them under stress, and ultimately you're going to make people ill particularly people who've got any underlying, possibly undiagnosed mental health problem. So this is an attack, a blatant attack by central government on the population in Britain. And of course, that attack has now been running for over, well, over a year, mm -hmm. effectively, during the COVID crisis. So he said this, behavioural science was conceived as a means of recognising and correcting the biases uh, that lead humans to make non-rational decisions. So this is an interesting little statement in itself because 
who were the individuals that decided we were all suffering from biases and who were the people that were deciding what was in the public's mind was non-rational because history has shown time and time again that when you want a rational decision, you put the question to the public and you allow them to respond. But this man is now starting to get lost in his own reality because who were these so-called um, superior humans that were deciding what people should be thinking and what they shouldn't? Uh, he said this, but it's not obvious to me that the trade-offs many governments are making in their responses to the pandemic are grounded in utilitarian rationality. Um, so now he's a little bit confused. He's not very, it's not very obvious to him what was going on, but this is only to do with um, utilita utilitarian subject matter. It's only practical things that he's talking about. No, 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 we're talking about calculated use of applied psychology to damage people's minds. And this was uh, an ending part, really. He said, as we've learned over the past two years, focusing on the science is blinkered, placing all value on data risks, deprioritizing reflection, reason and debate, and obscuring the limitations of that data as a depiction of reality, which is why we need multidisciplinary teams, a strong culture of intellectual humility and designed in cognitive diversity to tackle problems, especially in times of uncertainty. Now, of course, this was all a smokescreen of obfuscation. He's blurring the whole subject to cover the fact that malicious uh, behavioral insights agenda was put in place to scare people witless of a virus, uh, which they should have been able to deal with with their normal uh, minds in a good place. Um, but uh, you said a minute ago that to get a rational answer, you need to ask the public, right? Yes. So when you look at, uh, surely the public is a multidisciplinary team. It's got a strong cultural of intellectual humility and it's designed uh, and has designed in cognitive diversity. Surely that he's, he's saying that, isn't he? Uh, well, he's getting there, Mike, but I got, I've got to I've got to stick on the fact that, of course, instead of really saying what he means, he's using all this convoluted language. But we could say, uh, if we're going to have this rational debate, then we need to bring a wide range of scientists and vaccine experts and medical experts into the arena to discuss what should really mm. be happening with the so-called COVID pandemic. But of course, that's not what's happening. Uh, the government is putting in the bias by only giving the agenda to one group of individuals, whilst it uses another scientific group, the Behavioural Insights team, to ramp up fear using psychology that the public will not be aware of. So really, Simon Ruder getting away, he should have said this. It's obvious to me that the trade-offs many governments are making in their responses to the pandemic are grounded in fascist uh, re rationality. rationality. This is what is really going on here: is that we have got a fascistic mindset into the deep in the deep state, which is using this vicious applied psychology to damage people's minds. And if we dig into um, the behavioural insights team, now I'm not saying this gentleman's done anything wrong, but if we just have a look at his organisation, he's the leader of home affairs, security, and international development and practice. Uh, he's worked to establish the international footprint of behavioral insights, first as a founding member of our first overseas office in Sydney, Australia, and then across the Asia Pacific region. Now it was reported publicly that this uh, political applied psychology had been sold to Australia and indeed America. And he is admitting that this behavioral insights agenda is a, is a global phenomenon. So we shouldn't be surprised uh, when we see Ian Davis reporting on UK column that we've got a globalist policy which is coming into each and every country. Right. And uh, let's bring in the head man here because this is Professor David Halpin. Um, he led the team since its inception in 2010. And it says here that prior to that, he was the research director of the Institute of Government between 2001 and 2007, 
and he was the chief analyst at the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. So this man bounces between government and the private sector and, and also education without too much problem at all. So you don't really know what he's doing, uh, for which side at which time. Is he into what I've called the dark arts in uh, psychology? I certainly believe he is. Well, of course, the Telegraph also picked up on this. Downing Street's controversial nudge unit accused of exploiting scare tactics during the COVID crisis. It says the level of fear willingly conveyed on the public to get people to change their behavior was a far-reaching mistake. So there's the lie in that sub-headline. This wasn't a mistake. This was deliberate uh, government policy. And it was put in place because they knew that this applied psychology could cause fear, harm, and distress. And where is it at? Where is it ultimately led to? Well, the fact that we've now taken away God-given freedoms, um, which is which is affecting everybody in the country. People are depressed at the moment simply as a result of lockdown. Mm. So we are going to say UK Column has led on this subject over a great many years. Uh, but back uh, in 2016, we were focused again on the Mindspace document. You can find this online very easily, mindspace.pdf, and you can read the government boasting back in 2010. It could change the way people thought and they wouldn't realize this had happened. So do have a look at that document. And uh, we warned, we warned about malicious political applied psychology. Uh, we warned again in a great many articles. Um, this one in 2011, where we were warning that uh, the British Cabinet Office was teaming up with the French uh, brainwashing expert, or I better, better say for that, brain and neuro applied psychology expert Oliver Willier. Uh, from the uh, senior levels in the French government. Back in 2011, we were warning about that. And of course, David Halpern mentioned in that article as well. David Halpern mentioned in that article, Mike. And uh, more recently and specifically, we were warning about the use of this dangerous behavioural psychology to promote COVID fear. And that was in the interviews that we did with Rainer Formick, who was looking at the the disastrous uh, vaccine, vaccine policy in Germany and worldwide. So we've got to say today, it's obvious now, the truth's coming up to the surface, that the public has been attacked by the British government using this malicious applied psychology. It's up to all of us to spread the word. Um, so uh, maybe we can call this a nudge. Here we go. Uh, this is the government's latest uh, advertising campaign. They're now focusing on... Uh, Young people aged 18 to 34, Snapchat apparently is the, uh, the social media channel of choice for them. So they've launched a whole bunch of uh, graphics, but also a Snapchat filter uh, to encourage young audiences to get boosted now. Uh, and they're saying that while more than 80% of eligible adults in England have had a booster jab, just 57% of eligible 18 to 34 year olds have uh, been boosted. Uh, is a 34 year old not an adult? Is a 20-year-old not an adult? It's, it, it's all getting a bit clearer about what the government actually thinks of its own population. But anyway, uh, this new campaign is going to run across digital and radio, and it highlights that being unvaccinated or not booking in for your booster jab increases your risk of getting seriously ill from COVID-19. Well, of course, this narrative is uh, also being promoted by Sajid Javid. Um, so let's have a little bit of uh, uh, footage. Well, it's basically a tweet that he pushed out yesterday. Let's have a look at this. The reason why this country is as free as it is now is because of the decision that nine out of 10 people have made to get vaccinated. Those people who made a decision when they could have been vaccinated because they're not medically exempt, uh, for example, uh, but they, so they could have, they've chosen not to do that. And that has consequences. It doesn't just have consequences for them. It has consequences for all of us. Uh, my old friend might be interested to know that when I visited a hospital uh, last week, you know, King's College Hospital in London, that I was told by the consultant in charge when I went to the ICU ward that was looking after COVID patients, I was told that they estimate that 70% of those in the ICU ward 
were unvaccinated. 70% were unvaccinated. If those people had got vaccinated, they not only would have been uh, safer, uh, but it would have meant that that space in, 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 in hospitals could have been used for others. Uh, and, and if that is not just in ICU wards, if you look at the 17,000 uh, COVID positive patients in our hospitals, this is uh, something that could have been prevented had the, those that were unvaccinated or decided not to take their booster shot had actually bothered to do so. So yes, getting vaccinated, it needs to be a positive choice. We need to encourage people, and with the exception of, uh, of the health and social care high-risk settings, it should not be done by compulsion. I don't believe in that. I don't think it will work. I think it's unethical uh, to do so. But the people who have chosen not to get vaccinated should understand the consequences of their decision for the rest of society. Well, there we go, Mike. That, that's got to be fascism well on its way uh, into it. You, you make a decision which is about your freedoms and we are going to crush you. We're going to make sure we pay. And the other thing I want to just push to people is that most people listen to his words in that little clip and they're listening to the, the language that he's putting across. But of course, we don't know that that little speech is not delivered with the use of applied psychology. So you're not necessarily just taking in, it in in the normal sense. The government is now messaging using applied psychology so that they can basically go into your subliminal. This is, this is not science fiction. Read the government's own documentation about how they can use psychology to change what you think. But the question is whether he was telling the truth or not. And of course, we have been arguing for two years now that uh, that these types of figures from the government are not the truth. Uh, well, it seems there's more slight backtracking coming from uh, mainstream media again, because here's the Herald in Scotland. Now, of course, OK, they're talking COVID Scotland, but uh, the, the, the situation isn't really any different anywhere else in the UK or in the world, in fact. Uh, and... Uh, uh, their headline is COVID Scotland case rates lowest in unvaccinated as double jabbed elderly drive uh, rise in hospital admissions. Um, and so they are saying it comes uh, that, that uh, Scots are more likely to be admitted to hospital with COVID than the uh, sorry, vaccinated double jabbed uh, than the unvaccinated. It says this comes amid weird data showing that case rates have been lower in unvaccinated individuals than the single double or even triple jabbed since Omicron became the dominant variant in Scotland. Uh, the counterintuitive data from Public Health Scotland contradicts previous pandemic uh, trends uh, that have consistently shown infection, hospitalisation and death highest amongst the unvaccinated. So they're, they're a bit confused about what's going on at the moment. But the question is then, is Sajid Javid correct in what he said? I think he probably isn't, but it gets better. Uh, now, again, this is from Ireland, but it's no different in, in the UK at all. And this is the Irish Times. Most hospital patients with COVID-19 have no symptoms. Review finds. Well, I'm sorry, but if they've got no symptoms, they've got no disease. Uh, so they don't have COVID-19. They've had a positive PCR test. And if anything, what this uh, report shows is how rubbish the, uh, the testing uh, regime is. But what they're saying is that most patients in hospital with COVID-19 have no symptoms of the disease, according to a review of nine Irish hospitals. The vast majority do not need supplemental oxygen. Well, of course, if they don't have it, they're not going to need supplemental oxygen. So that's obvious. Uh, and an indication that the virus is manifesting itself less severely than before. Is that uh, what it indicates? I'm not sure that it is. What it indicates, uh, to my mind, and I think the, what, we, what we've presented over the last couple of years demonstrated it time and time again, is that people are being miscategorized. Uh, they're going in for other problems and they're receiving a positive test uh, when they get into hospital and they're immediately being pushed onto a COVID ward. Uh, and in some cases, this has been very detrimental to their health. They inevitably, uh, if they're not getting the treatment for what they actually went in for, they pass away and they get categorized as a COVID death. This has been happening for two years. Um, and although we're seeing backtracking uh, from the Behavioral Insights team, because clearly uh, they want to brand what they did as a mistake in case somebody might want to have some kind of inquiry in the future. Uh, the mainstream media clearly backtracking increasingly and starting to cover some of the narratives that we've been covering and others have been covering for the last uh, two years in an effort to, to keep themselves afloat, let's say. Um, but uh, uh, the lies continue to come from the politicians nonetheless.
They do. And we just remind people that um, ONS, the Office of National Statistics, so important apparently in pushing out the real data as to what's been happening during this so-called COVID uh, pandemic. The ONS uh, has so far refused to fully reply to the UK column when we asked by the Freedom of Information Act for data on their relationship with the fact, so-called fact-checking organisation, Full Fact. So Full Fact says that it had, uh, it had had people from the ONS working with it. We asked for details of the contracts, uh, what, the, what the nature of those uh, working positions were. And uh, so far, we have not had a full response from ONS. So is ONS, is the Office of National Statistics independent? Can we trust them? Or is their data now simply being skewed by the government and other agencies before it's pushed out to the public? These are the questions that we need to ask. But if we want to really see, um, I'm going to say, propaganda at work, let's have a look at this uh, film interview. Uh, this is Good Morning Britain interviewing the very brave doctor who a few days ago was prepared to say why he wasn't jabbed to uh, Sajid Javid. Uh, let's look at how uh, GMB deals with this particular gentleman. Now, a video clip of an unvaccinated doctor challenging the health secretary over government plans to make the COVID jab mandatory for all NHS staff very soon now has gone viral. Dr Steve James is a consultant anaesthetist at King's College Hospital in London and he's been working in the ICU there since early 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. And on a visit by the health secretary, he told Sajid Javid the science isn't strong enough to support the policy of mandatory vaccination for NHS staff. Let's hear what he had to say. You're not happy about it, don't no. So I've had COVID at some point. Yeah. Uh, I've got antibodies. Yeah. Um, I've been working on COVID ITU since the beginning. I have not had a vaccination. I do not want to have a vaccination. And for that, I would be dismissed if I don't have a vaccine. It's not, the science isn't strong enough. Well, Dr. Steve James is joining us live now from, from his home. Uh, as Susanna said, that thing went viral. So many millions of people have seen it. And basically, Dr. Jones, that's made you the poster doc for the whole anti-vax movement. But that's not, that's not a kind of hat that you want to wear. And you've come on Good Morning Britain to try and put the record straight. So where exactly do you stand on vaccination? Firstly, thank you very very much for giving me the opportunity to be here um if i'm the voice of anything i'm the voice of a uh, hundred thousand nhs uh staff uh, already lost their jobs people whose voice hasn't been heard okay but can you can you do what i think you're here to do which is to explain why you're not anti-vax well to be and well I'm not anti-vax because I've seen a great, great benefit from vaccines. Um, there's been a huge reduction in the number of uh, seriously ill patients who've come into hospital and vaccination has probably made, or it's almost certainly made the largest contribution to that. So why, so did, you say, so why did you say that to, to Javid? So there's a difference between me giving my own personal opinion about why I wouldn't have a vaccine and whether vaccines in general are good. So, you know, as a doctor, I'm not anti-surgery. It doesn't mean that surgery is what I need to have. So for a population, it'd be good to offer certain treatments. Doesn't mean that everybody needs to have those treatments. So why haven't you been vaccinated? Personally, I'm uh, a fit and well uh, man. I'm, I'm not elderly. Um, I was ex exposed to COVID on multiple occasions uh, in hospital settings. Um, and I wasn't getting sick. And I thought, well, the vaccines are out there now. They'll go to the elderly and the vulnerable. And I was surprised to see that there wasn't a point where uh, instead of saying, OK, instead of offering to everyone, we're now going to start offering it to people in a more nuanced way. But being fit and young and well is no defence against COVID. Young, fit people have died from it. I haven't seen anyone who's young and fit and well and has died of COVID. Now, there are always going to be exceptions, um, but young, fit and healthy people also die of other things. Um, so I thought I would just sit and wait and see, sit and wait. Um, um, you know, yesterday, the, the director of the CDC 
announced that uh, more than 75% of deaths in the US have been in people with four or more comorbidities. So out of that 25%, a lot of them have got three, have got two, have got one. I still haven't seen anybody who's, who's died in my hospital. Not say it hasn't happened, but who hasn't got any comorbidities or any issues. Uh, just to be clear, you are speaking entirely in a personal capacity and not uh, as a representative uh, for the hospital. Um, you won't get vaccinated and you've explained why you believe you don't need to. Uh, just want to establish, have you, you say you've been exposed to COVID. Have you actually had COVID? Um, I haven't had a symptomatic episode that I know to be COVID. So I had one fever in the last two years. It lasted, it came on in an evening. Uh, when I did the ne next tests, uh, I was negative. So I don't know if I've had it symptomatically, but I've got antibodies that show that I've had it. How do you know that? Uh, how do, do you get an antibody test offered to you at, uh, in your work? No, it's not offered to me in work, but I've had one done. You've had and that one, was, sorry? You've had one? He's had an antibody I've test done, one. and that would be privately, presumably, would it? Well, I asked uh, the hospital if it's possible to get one done, and I got one done then. And just to clarify then, if, you, if anybody is carrying antibodies to COVID, are you saying that that automatically means that they must have been infected with it at some point? Yeah, if you're carrying antibodies to a virus, you've developed an immune system's memory because you, you develop that memory because you've been exposed to it before. Okay, so that's it's the kind of Novak Djokovic defence against mm. um, vaccination, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, Dr. James, um, you are not going to get uh, vaccinated. You, you've said that. You've had that argument with the health secretary. Of course, that comes with a penalty within the NHS because from April, if you aren't vaccinated, you'll lose your job. Are you prepared yeah. to simply lose your work for the sake of taking a vaccination, which we know, and you have explained, is enormously beneficial? So the, the benefit is, a, is for people who are likely to have a serious consequence. So the benefit isn't there for me. I'm, for me, it's a point of principle that 100,000 members of my profession who have made careful and valued assessments for themselves in, in the majority of cases, that they are not being forced to have a vaccine, to have a medical intervention, which up until current epidemic was outlawed in public health acts, that even in Christ, health crises, these things weren't going to be allowed. And now the government's changed its mind and said that we think it's there. But the government's reports from the House of Commons, from select committees, from the House of Lords, they say the scientific evidence isn't strong enough. Well, are you, are you arguing this purely from a... So, well... What's, what's, what's your overview of that? Well, I, I, th I, think, uh, I think we've been talking about how the mainstream media has been backtracking on this whole thing in certain uh, cases. But clearly, Richard Medley and uh, Susanna Reid, ex-BBC, uh, aren't, uh, aren't doing that at all. They rather aggressively attempted yeah. to trip the guy up. Uh, he had majorly in particular they're very aggressive if it depends if you're watching on a small screen you won't pick it up but if you're watching him on a bigger screen and you can see his body language extremely aggressive it's almost like he wants to leap into that interview to to uh, press this man down because he's not giving the right line so uh but uh all the uh, he had all the answers the doctor had all the answers. Doctor had all the answers. Bit nervous to start off. Several people have said, "Why was the original um, interview where he was in the hospital? Why was that blurred out?" Now that's been done by GMB, presumably because they don't even want to give him proper airtime to show what he said to the, to the minister in the first place. So I, I'm just going to pop this image up on screen because um, who is Richard Madeley? Well, from the Richard and Judy show. Um, he's now apparently become GMB's sort of vaccine expert. He's there swigging from his cup of tea, uh, arms folded, very aggressive. This is outrageous where we have a medical professional who should be quietly asked his opinion uh, why he thinks what he does. But if that's a doctor speaking out, let's have a look at this uh, really excellent uh, video interview, which I'm going to encourage people to go and see in full. But let's have a look at an excerpt and see what nurses are saying. Today, for a change, we're in Sheffield and we're at a protest that's being run by NHS staff. 
um, to protest against the fact that they're at the moment, the way it stands, they're going to be sacked in April 2022 um, if they don't take a vaccine for the coronavirus. All right, so let's go and speak to some people now. Let's get going. You're, any, you're NHS staff. I am, yeah. What's your job in the NHS? So I'm a cardiographer. That means I just do ECGs, lowly Bantu tech. OK, well, it sounds pretty serious to me. <laughs> so I just wanted to get an idea, with you being NHS, like why you're here today, why you feel it's important to, to be here representing the NHS. Um, well, we stand to lose a lot of staff. Um, just in uh, my department alone, there's around 10 of us, but I know there's around um, 1,500 or more just in Sheffield that are going to be forced to either take the jab or lose the jobs. And we've got antibodies, and that is... A lot of us have got antibodies. I, myself, work through the pandemic, heavily pregnant, asthmatic. My little girl's one now, and I weren't furloughed. And uh, the media had me running scared and crying to my boss, saying, please furlough me, why aren't I being furloughed? And according to the mainstream media, I should be dead by now because, you know, I worked asthmatic and pregnant and, and I'm not and I'm here and I've got antibodies so I don't want the um, jab because I, I've seen patients come in, um, only a few, but even though there's only a few, it's enough for me to say I don't want the jab. There's a few patients that I see, probably 20 patients a day and three of those on average come in with things like palpitations, arrhythmias, um, it could be something as small as... Um, palpitations but I've also seen two patients that have had blood clots from the injection and I only went back to work in October um, after maternity so yeah it scares me that they're gonna they're gonna sack us for what really is um, something that should be personal choice. I'm in my last year of nursing I'm a student nurse um, and they said that I can't finish my degree off I've got six months left and I just don't agree with all this force vaccination I think it's wrong um, and I feel like we need to be heard. So you're you're trying to be a nurse at the moment? Yeah I've got six months left to qualify. Wow and we often hear about shortages in the NHS and that kind of thing and now they're actually stopping people from joining the NHS it seems. Um, well essentially um, you've got over 100,000 staff that um, are potentially going to lose their jobs because they choose not to take a, a medical intervention. Um, we believe that everybody has a right to choose. Um, we're not here as an anti-vax group, not at all. There's many of us here that have um, taken vaccines in the past, me being you know, one of them. Um, but I just choose not to take this particular vaccine because there's not enough long-term safety data. So we're just here um, you know, to support everybody, everybody in the interest, um, to stop these mandates, because um, we just don't think it's fair. It's important to be here today because under current circumstances we are losing our medical freedom and we should all, whether you're NHS staff or just a member of the public, have the right to choose over what is put in our bodies. So a really excellent clip there and what a contrast between the so-called professional with Richard Madeley and uh, that nonsense with GMB and uh, what, what a, an amateur site has put out. So. To make sure you can go and see the full uh, clip on that, let's just bring this one on screen. So there's the Odyssey link for Sheffield Hospital staff COVID. And if you go to that link, you can watch more of that uh, video interview with the nurses and the NHS staff. Uh, right. Now, uh, a number of weeks ago, um, Brian suggested that perhaps people might like to contact the MHRA and ask them a question. And uh, many of you did, it seems. And we'll explain how we know that many of you did, aside from the number of uh, emails I've had in the last uh, couple of days. Yeah. So let's just give uh, one example of somebody. This is from Tom, uh, who sent this to MHRA Customer Services. Dear Sir, Madam, could you please answer a question for me? Uh, where is the quantitative risk assessment data and report which demonstrates that the MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reports are not the result of vaccine adverse effects? Uh, thank you in advance. I await your reply. Um, well, Tom and uh, quite a number of others have uh, received responses from the H MHRA now. So let's have a look and see what they said. In this case, thank you for your email of 7th of December, uh, which is being handled under the Freedom of Information Act. Your reference number is... Um, and then they go on to say the Freedom of Information Act places a general duty on public authorities to provide access to official information. However, the Act also provides an exemption to that duty for requests that are determined to be vexatious. So if you're uh, considered to be vexatious, uh, they, uh, they can simply not uh, reply. Now, 
uh, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the past, the vexatious approach um, has been to people who have been uh, serial freedom of information re uh, requesters. So in other words, uh, to whatever government agency, if, yeah. you're, if you're sending, you know, 20 requests in two weeks, then that would be considered vexatious. But this is the first time uh, I've seen this because this is what they went on to say. As such, we're refusing your request under Section 14 brackets 1 of the Freedom of Information Act. As we be believe your request is part of a campaign, given the volume of requests we've received that are worded in the same way as your request. Um, so, okay, uh, they decided that they couldn't just cut, uh, gather up all these requests into one big request and give one answer. Why, why couldn't they do that? Well, maybe they don't have an answer. Uh, but what they did go on to say is, if you disagree with how we've interpreted the Freedom of Information Act in answering your request, you can ask for an internal review. Please reply to this email within two months of the reply, specifying that you would like an internal review to be carried out. And I think that's what needs to happen at this point. Uh, there's no justification uh, for the MHRA not responding to a reasonable Freedom of Information request. It doesn't really matter how many uh, requests of a similar type they receive, it seems to me. Uh, I, I understand uh, if, um, if, a, uh, if a, a, an agency wants to uh, uh, respond to uh, one person who is, you know, asking question after question after question um, that using the vexatious approach, but not in this case, as far as I can see, it's not appropriate. Oops. So internal reviews required all round. Internal review is required, and and if anybody's thinking, oh, this is just not worth the time, it absolutely is worth the time because you have to ask for that internal review before you can go to the information commissioner to challenge the fact that they have not responded to the freedom of information. So the next step in the process is that uh, MHRA should be challenged, and uh, depending on what re response comes from that, that action, there will be the opportunity to then escalate it to the information commissioner themselves. And I will add that the information commissioner has done some very, very good work in the past at forcing organizations to reveal information which they are very reluctant to do. But let's just remind ourselves why that question to the MHRA is so important in the first place. And that is the MHRA collects data on vaccine adverse reactions that is the so-called yellow card data. Uh, it's showing well over a million adverse effects and deaths now in uh, um, about 1,800 deaths. They admit that probably only um, a few percentage of the true figures are ever recorded, but the MHR keeps that data. And then it says to the public, the vaccines are safe to make that statement the MHRA must have the data, the analysis, which proves the vaccines are safe despite the number of reported adverse reactions. Now, what is happening here is when people ask them for the data to prove their safety statement, the MHRA is now backpedaling very, very quickly. And of course, if we get the data, then we can see what the truth is about vaccine safety. So the MHRA is being very disingenuous here. If we're polite, uh, they are stalling because they don't want the public to have this vital safety data. Um, right, now let's uh, come on to Richard Littlejohn in the mail. Uh, and this is his uh, headline today, Boris Booze Up proves that he knew lockdown was bonkers. Well, I'm glad that Richard uh, Littlejohn is finally getting uh, the point uh, because the point has been rammed home by us and others for about two years now. I, I can't remember whether little John, what stand he has personally taken on this uh, over the last uh, 12 or 18 months. Uh, but look, here's the point. Uh, what's he saying? Boris, uh, Boris's booze up proves that lockdown was bonkers. We knew this, we knew this. We knew this when Dominic Cummings was messing about. Uh, we knew that uh, the, the government didn't believe in their own lockdown policy because none of them were adhering to it. We knew when the Scottish chief medical officer was forced to resign because she broke her own lockdown rules. So if the chief medical officer wasn't so fearful, uh, was while they were pumping fear into the rest of the population, that she was uh, locking herself and her family down, uh, she went off on holiday uh, and, uh, well, was forced to resign. And of course, uh, uh, doc, uh, Professor Lockdown himself, Neil Ferguson, 
had to quit because he was undermining lockdown rules. So we've known for 18 months, nearly two years, that the government and their agents uh, did not uh, believe their own narrative on lockdown because they weren't adhering to it at all. So it should really come as no surprise to anybody um, that uh, Boris was also uh, swilling the wine and whatever else at yeah. various uh, uh, parties. Now, the question of whether uh, he was breaking uh, the specific or whether there was any uh, he wasn't quite doing the same things that, that these others were because uh, because there were exemptions within the, the lockdown legislation or the lockdown rules for uh, offices, office spaces and workplaces. Um, and so it might be a moot point as to whether he was actually breaking the, the lockdown rules or not. That for To get that answer, maybe we need to look at what uh, at the sort of uh, background campaigning that's going on from the likes of Rishi Sunak and, and Liz Truss uh, because they smell blood. Yeah. Um, but of course, uh, don't be looking to the Labour Party for for uh, any uh, alternative here, because here's Keir Starmer uh, in the Telegraph, branded an absolute hypocrite for drinking with staff during lockdown. So it wasn't just Boris, so, it was the Labour Party as well. None of them believed in the lockdown policy. Uh, they just required the general public to follow their rules. Yeah, so they, they weren't frightened enough to self-isolate or, or to insulate themselves from, from other people. They, they weren't bothered at all because they knew what the government was selling to the public was a lie. But of course, the use of the applied psychology that was rammed uh, into the public's heads, this was very real. And uh, so we have a lie, the lie of the dangers of pandemic reinforced with with just vile applied psychology where they knew the damage they could do to people's minds. So elderly people, young people made unbelievably anxious and fearful and stressed. And of course, in the background, we've seen this huge rise in mental uh, health issues, which many of the charities and agencies have been talking about. But of course, the mainstream press and media have forgotten that. But let's move on to this lady, because you see her sometimes and then again, you don't. But I've chosen the Civil Service World article here because it's got a lot more detail than you will read in the wider press. And uh, the person is asking about a lady called Sue Gray because she's the one who's apparently in charge of the probe into the party at the moment. And here's uh, the title, Opinion, Two Questions Sue Gray Must Answer About Her COVID Party Probe and another question from uh, Civil Service World. Uh, the, it then says, if the purpose of the Partygate inquiry is to reassure us, then we're being asked to accept a string of foolish choices, a form of civil servant rights. And this is uh, the gentleman, Douglas Board. If you want to go onto his Twitter site, you can get more of a feel for him. There's a few questions I'd like to ask that gentleman, but we'll leave him to one side for the moment. Let's have a look at what he wrote. He said, as Partygate intensifies, the last thing the government needs is questions for Sue uh, Gray, the official in charge of the inquiry. Unfortunately, the independent inquiry into Greensill provides two. What party or party-like conduct during lockdown would Gray herself consider outrageous? And two, if Gray discovered it, what would she do? So this is uh, really getting to the point of the matter. When journalists asked last week whether Gray would redo interviews already done by a recused boss, Simon Case, an easy response lay on the table. Suppose we heard from Gray, my inquiry will be rigorous and completed at pace. I will not hesitate to re-interview where I judge this necessary. We would have been reassured. Interviewees would have been warned and the option of doing no re-interviewing would have remained option, uh, sorry, would have remained open. And if we carry on, instead, number 10 said that Gray had picked up the work already done. Uh, she had been briefed by the relevant team. Unnamed sources said that re-interviewing was unlikely. Um, let's highlight all this. She'd been briefed. It was unlikely and the inquiry would be pragmatic. And it continues, Gray is a for formidable former head of propriety and ethics at the Cabinet Office, so we have been told more than once she has conducted many inquiries, but if that was the case, and that was the extent of cases, her boss or number 10's thinking, then that was careless. Her name appears 35 times 
in the Greensill investigation. This is to do with money at the heart of government, of course. And uh, the key question still in the background is, who is this lady, really? Well, if we go to The Guardian, uh, they're asking that question, who she is. Uh, she was once described as Deputy God, uh, and she's been roped in to replace the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, who quit leading the inquiry after claims emerged that he held a party himself. So your boss holds a party, he steps down, and his junior steps in to uh, presumably whitewash the whole thing. But uh, if we go on here, it says she also sits on the panel deciding on who will be the next chair of the media regulator, Ofcom. So the most powerful person you've never had, uh, sorry, you've never heard of, um, but trust her because she's going to investigate this uh, properly. Yes. So, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and your support is very much needed. Uh, so if you are watching for free uh, and you, we do need your financial support and that would be uh, fantastic. Now, if you want to uh, share our material on the various platforms and from the UK Column website as well, uh, that would be great too. And uh, uh, well, don't forget there's hoodies and other things on the UK Column shop. You can support us that way as well. Indeed. Well, a big thank you. We just want to step back to um, the fundraiser for David Noakes. Um, this is the total now, an incredible £45,001. Um, the goal was 50000 David and Lynn would just like to say thank you. Thank you all so much. Uh, because, of course, David is, is out of prison at the moment. He's awaiting the next part of the trial, but it uh, looks as if he will be freed. And this has only happened due to the generosity of the people that have supported this fundraiser. So if we can get it to 50,000, um, it will go to a very good cause because, of course, the Swiss are also indicating that they might attempt to uh, try David really for the same crimes he's already served time for. Now, here's uh, more on jabs. Um, somebody said this. I emailed you a few months ago regarding the bullying tactics the military were using to force their people to receive the experimental vaccine. Once legal has approved the use for forced vaccination to keep your job, this dark day has unfortunately arrived. And then some real detail, because they put in an excerpt um, from an executive memorandum that had recently been published in the military and is in the process of becoming policy. And what does this say? It says, following recent VCDS, uh, now that's uh, vice chair of the uh, staff. defense staff, I believe, yes, following recent VCDS policy direction, the director of personnel and trainings direction now requires all commanding officers and heads of establishment to direct staff to identify those personnel in their command chain who have not yet presented for vaccination and provide command, divisional and or medical intervention to, quote, educate, encourage or outline the potential consequences of their decision if an individual's choice ultimately renders them non-deployable and or unable to carry out their primary role an administrative discharge is also a possibility. Uh, didn't Sajid Javid in his little uh, speech earlier on say that the uh, vaccination, would, except for the health service, would remain a voluntary thing? Uh, but that's yeah, saying quite the opposite. Of course, because this is the real policy at the heart of government. And that's why I suggested that uh, uh, what Javid was saying was actually uh, words created for him. And the email ended as an active member of the RN who's worked who's served 25 years. I'm completely disgusted that they are doing this, something the RN had prided themselves in by tackling these kinds of, in, of, of issues. So we'd like to say thank you very much to the person who sent that to us. But yeah, we're getting a real feel now for how brutal this policy is based on what is now emerging as sheer lies over the claims made about COVID and its dangers. Uh, now, of course, the, the COVID narrative uh, falling apart before our eyes, but, uh, well, there's always something else to fill the gap if we want to maintain the levels of fear within, within the population. Um, so let's uh, immediately, now we haven't heard from North Korea for, for goodness knows how long, uh, but suddenly it's back in the media again. North Korea fires two missiles, uh, warns of action over sanctions. This is RTE in Ireland. North Korea fired at least two ballistic missiles 
uh, its third test in less than two weeks. Um, well, what effect did that have apart from attempting to put the fear into, into as many people as possible? Uh, well, in fact, uh, last week, uh, sorry, earlier this week, in fact, the FAA in the United States uh, grounded planes in, in the western part of the United States precaution uh, around the time the North Korea tested their missile. Now, of course, they only grounded aircraft for 15 minutes, but that had a, a, an impact in terms of delays and cancellations across the country. Uh, they only grounded them 15 minutes, as I say, but it also meant lots and lots of headlines like this one across the US press, again, designed to put fear into people's minds. Did, did they expect this missile to sort of find its way to America? Is that, was that the problem or? No, I, but I think they were clearly concerned that, a, that an airplane would just crash into one of those uh, as it, uh, as it was flying across the Pacific. Right. But, uh, but you know, it continues, it gets better because uh, of course we've got now uh, total, total Chinese hysteria in the uh, UK press, uh, Chinese spies at the height of uh, government and uh, how Beijing uses its billions to buy political influence around the world from 685 billion invested in the Commonwealth building 5G spy networks to take, to take overs through Latin America and Africa as China's British spy has revealed, this was the mail today, the Chinese government has long used its billions to buy up political influence in countries around the world. It has invested 685 billion pounds in Caribbean countries, including Barbados and Jamaica since 2005. Uh, Beijing struck a deal with Latin American states to build 50, 5G networks uh, and share nuclear technology. Uh, MI5 has warned MPs about Christine Ching Kui Lee, uh, a suspected spy for the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party. So uh, let's uh, bring the, the lovely uh, Liz Truss on screen wearing her Theresa May dress there. Uh, she said, I'm going to replace the Commonwealth Development Corporation with a new body, uh, British International Investment, to provide up to eight billion pounds a year, uh, sorry, eight billion pounds of investment per year in Commonwealth countries by 2025. Right. So on the same day that the Daily Mail is telling us that the Chinese are pumping money into Commonwealth countries, in order to garner influence, Liz Truss is pumping, is announcing that she's pumping billions of pounds into Commonwealth countries in order to garner influence. All countries do this. And the fact that we have a Daily Mail article saying those nasty Chinese are doing this soft power gag, well, this is something we all do. And just before you, you comment, Brian, I just want to highlight this. Uh, this is, uh, a, unfortunately, the, the Foreign uh, Commonwealth and Development Office no longer provides this information as an HTML page. You can download uh, an Excel spreadsheet of it. But if you search for uh, FCDO and spending over 25,000 uh, pounds on your search engine of choice, you'll get the, the latest. But they're, they're more or less the same. You, you don't sort of see any difference in these from month to month uh, in, on a general sense. So let's have a look at what the FCDO is spending money on. Uh, millions and millions and millions of pounds. I mean, there's uh, 40 million pounds, 30 million pounds, 26 million pounds, 15 million pounds, 14 million pounds, 10 million pounds, uh, separate grants to the United Nations. W why are they doing that? Is that for soft power, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. It's for soft power. Uh, right. Yeah. Who else is on that list? Uh, more United Nations. Oh, the BBC. Look, uh, well, what's the BBC? Well, it's not just the, it's the British propaganda. Uh, organization for the world, because of course the BBC doesn't just operate in the UK, it operates globally. Uh, who else have we got on this list? Uh, all kinds of people. Uh, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland's an interesting one. They've, well, uh, that, that, that could be paying a bill, but uh, we've got uh, the United Nations again on there, uh, and uh, we'll continue on down the list. Uh, we've got uh, the World Bank. Now, that's an interesting one. Uh, but we've also got BBC Media Action coming on this list as well. Uh, of course, that's another soft power organization uh, and so on. Zinc Network Limited. Now, this is from 2020, I appreciate, but the Zinc Network was the successor to the Integrity Initiative. That was about media development and counter disinformation. It was about pumping propaganda into foreign countries. So this is something that all countries do, but the UK is one of the the biggest uh, use, users of soft power. And in fact, this is the only reason the UK built uh, the two uh, aircraft carriers. These are soft, these are not really hard power implements because we don't have the support vessels, as you've oh, pointed out correct. many, many times. These are soft power uh, vessels. They go around and they, they uh, hold dinners and, and all kinds of stuff on them, right? 
this is something that we've done for, for decades, Brian. Yeah, ab absolutely. And you're, you're quite correct, because to have the carriers without the backup in the fleet is just, just nonsense. What makes me laugh is that if the, if, if the UK as a nation said, well, we regard the Chinese as being extremely dangerous, we're going to regard them as a possible threatening military power, and we're going to protect the country, uh, you couldn't have possibly allowed them to build up £685 billion worth of investment. So, so the security agencies, we're to believe, didn't really know the Chinese were building up nearly a trillion uh, pounds worth of investments. But today, they suddenly take the lid off it and then say, well, we've got to watch out for these nasty Chinese. There's something very dirty happening under the surface. But at the end of the day, public opinion, public fear and emotions. This is what's being manipulated by this media. And, you know, it, it, I have to say, for all the people that are, that are buying this story, uh, I don't know. I don't actually, you lost for words, but you're allowed to. I am struggling because, because, you know, it, it was the same with, with COVID in a sense. Uh, there are people that, for some reason, want to believe the stories that are coming out of the mouths of politicians and the media under certain circumstances and under other circumstances, they recognize that it's lies. And, and I've just got to ask the question, uh, why do people not recognize that it's all lies? Every, every word well, this that comes is, out of the average politician's mark, this is, is a lie. Well, it's not just politicians speaking you know, from their heart, Mike. Their words are very carefully crafted by the Conservative Party. And this is where the use of applied behavioural psychology is so important. Every message that comes out of government has gone through the, the steering group of applied psychology. So people are being affected because they're not able to take the message in in a normal way. They are taking it in subliminally, then they believe it. Um, so let's put this on screen. This is the NATO-Russia dialogue that was taking place in Geneva, uh, on, sorry, in Brussels on, on Wednesday. Um, and uh, well, that didn't go so well. Uh, that was, uh, uh, well, we'll just show a little bit of video of what NATO was pushing uh, out on their Twitter feed, um, just so that you can see the kind of uh, propaganda. Um, so Russia asked once again for guarantees that Ukraine would never be let into NATO. And if anybody's wondering why Russia consider this, considers this a red line, aside from all the other comments we made, of course, Russia was promised on multiple occasions by the United States and NATO that that would never happen, that NATO would not expand eastwards. Uh, NATO has ex massively expanded eastwards uh, and Ukraine is uh, considered the red line. Uh, so uh, the, the mainstream media coverage of this, again, absolutely anti-Russian uh, in the sense that they are highlighting things like Russia would neither confirm nor deny the possibility that they would send mil military assets to Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, they, well, that meeting was followed up with a meeting yesterday at the OSCE. Uh, and this is what uh, Jan Stoltenberg had to say as a result of, uh, of these uh, two meetings. There is now a real risk of a new armed conflict in Europe. And this narrative, this rhetoric was reflected in the mainstream press. Here's uh, Sky News. Uh, Ukraine prices uh, crisis, sorry, Talks between the West and Russia are ending in deadlock and the risk of war remains as real as ever. And in fact, in bold at the top, the first line of the article says Europe has not been this close to war for three decades. Um, and uh, of course, we're pushing the narrative that it's Russia that's being the aggressor here. Uh, be afraid. Uh, so Reuters even telling us we've got to be afraid. Uh, Ukraine hit by cyber attack. Russia moves more troops. And of course, Russia is pushing as hard as it can. Uh, to uh, run more and more military exercises. They're extremely aggressive, military exercises everywhere. Uh, but strangely enough, we're taking part in military exercises as well. In fact, more military exercises than we've ever seen, taking with respect to NATO at least. Uh, and you'll be glad to know that the, uh, uh, one of the aircraft carriers, HMS Prince of Wales, has decided to transform its pennant with uh, the NATO badge. Is that uh, something that happens regularly, Brian? Um I'm going back in time quite a while um, now, Mike. So I have to say this is not something I remember in this form when ships were operating as part of NATO squadrons. They carried the NATO badge, but to have the carrier badged with this, no, I haven't seen this before. 
maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I just find it very odd. I think this is a publicity exercise. Uh, yes. Well, let's have a look at what the, the uh, Russian response to all this was. Uh, this is Alexander Lukashevich, uh, uh, who's the Russian permanent representative to the OSCE. He said, regrettably, we've not heard an adequate response from some or some reaction uh, to our proposals from our partners, that's uh, NATO and, and so on. Uh, everything uh, revolved around their concerns and Russia's allegedly aggressive behavior, in particular in the Ukrainian context. They've interpreted in their own way the principle of indivisibility of security enshrined in the OSCE documents. So, uh, you know, this, yeah. We'll... I just wanted to inject that. The, well, of course, amongst the OSCE documents was one from many years ago, uh, which was a, a, a pinkish color and the title was Common Purpose. And <laughs> that whole document was about creating European security in inverted commas to a common purpose, but when you, you really got into the text, it was talking about the expansion of the European Union from the Atlantic to the Ural. So there's a lot of questions to be asked about that type of documentation. Um, okay, now let's uh, move on to, to space and satellites and well, good news because uh, Virgin uh, has managed to launch, what, seven satellites? Virgin Orbit uh, launched seven satellites into space yesterday on a rocket that was uh, uh, unleashed from adapted uh, Boeing 747 flying over the Pacific Ocean, said one mainstream media outlet. I think that was the mail. Uh, so this is uh, Cosmic Girl that you can see on screen at the moment. Uh, and that flew up to 35,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean uh, for an hour. And then uh, an, the pilot un unleashed the Launcher 1 rocket. Uh, now, the government said that, uh, that this included satellites from uh, the U.S., Department of Defense, but also uh, a satellite from Spire, which is a Scottish satellite manufacturer. Um, and uh, so these satellites were shipped from Glasgow to California for the launch uh, because we still don't have a, uh, a, a space ports in, in the UK yet, despite the government's announcements of them several years ago. But of course, that was Virgin, and we've got to say well done to that. But in the meantime, uh, SpaceX, uh, yes, uh, yesterday or earlier in the week, launching 105 satellites from one rocket. Uh, now, these are all quite quite uh, small satellites. Um, so let's have a look at uh, at this little bit of video. Well, it's just a little, uh, what, what do we call it, a little propaganda piece for British space ports that the government released in 2018. Um, and uh, so they, they said, one giant leap, vertical launch spaceport to bring UK into space age. The UK is set to build on its world leading expertise in aerospace with the development of, a, of vertical and horizontal spaceports. Um, industrial strategy funding has been awarded uh, and uh, there are gonna be spaceports in Scotland, uh, also in Cornwall. Uh, so Glasgow Prestwick is, is uh, likely to be one and Snowdonia as well. Uh, but there are pretty small amounts of money uh, going on there. But also in 2018, uh, we had this uh, announcement, which, uh, and this was the promotional video for, for this. This is Lockheed Martin and Orbex who were launching the UK into the space age because uh, they were invest investing in space launch operations and bringing innovative new technologies to Britain, according to Greg Clark, who was the business secretary at the time. Um, and uh, so that's what he was saying. But my point uh, in 2017 and 2018 when this stuff was being talked about originally and my point remains now that of course Britain is the only country on the face of the earth which has given away its satellite launch capability uh, because we had two uh, pieces of technology this is Blue Streak being launched in uh, I think the late 1960s uh, and the next one uh, here we have Black Arrow which actually yeah. was capable of launching a satellite it only ever had one launch, and the only reason that it launched was because uh, it was it had already been taken to Australia, which is where the the launch was taking place from. And they thought, well, we might as well just launch this, despite the fact that the entire program had been cancelled. Why had it been cancelled? Because it had been given away to the French uh, in order to uh, guarantee Britain's entry into the European Union, uh, and that technology uh, eventually ended up in the Ariane. Uh, space program in the, in the European, the EU space, space program. So Britain, Britain's pride uh, with respect to space technology is that we gave away what we had, uh, and now we're playing catch up. So while I say well done to Virgin, um, Virgin is really uh, entering this game 
when in fact Britain could have been well ahead yeah. at, at this point. But it was destroyed from, from the inside for sure. the European Union. If I remember correctly, Mike, um, a very, very early printed UK column newspaper had, had the story about uh, Blue Streak and what happened in that project. So we'll see whether we can dig that out. Well, let's just end on the infamous BBC. And uh, what's the uh, BBC? Well, what doesn't the BBC want to comment about? They don't want to comment about the fact that somebody uh, was on the front of their building to damage the Gill statue on the basis that uh, the man who created the statue um, was guilty of... Uh, paedophilia and um, well, and incest and and uh he was also having sex with his dog so so he, really pretty despicable human being and of course many people brian suggests that this particular uh, statue itself has should a, be taken around, down yes uh, sort of uh, those kinds of connotations yeah so many people asked the bbc to take it down they didn't want to but this is their response to what happened um, the BBC doesn't want to talk about this. I wonder why not. But of course, the same BBC was very happy to promote people who were damaging statues in Bristol and London and elsewhere. And indeed, many of those people have not been, um, have not suffered. They haven't been uh, sentenced for any of their vandalism. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether the BBC presses charges now that people are really focused on this very dark background to do with the abuse of children that the BBC still has. Uh, but we'll end on the happy news, and that is that the BBC has done a wonderful promotional video for uh, Prince Andrew. Uh, it's a little clip saying really how sad he's going to be now that his military titles have been stripped away. So I'm going to say an utter disgrace again from the BBC uh, that they're not doing anything to promote the sadness of of any of the victims that may have suffered in Epstein case as a whole. Obviously, we don't know what Andrew's real involvement was. We wait for the outcome of uh, potential court hearings, uh, but the BBC is in there straight away. So I'm just gonna end on this really disgraceful note, yes. I think. Okay, well, we, we uh, managed to get through despite a few little gremlins with the systems at the start. Uh, somebody in the comments has just reminded me that, of course, going back into the Cold War days, we did have standing Naval Force Atlantic, which did carry the uh, NATO badge. Mm. But this was my point that uh, we did see it when groups were deployed. But I think that badge is going to stay on the carriers because it's trying to make out that Britain's uh, uh, or the Royal Navy is now the, the kingpin of NATO. Mm. I think that's what that agenda is about. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll end there. Yes, we'll be back 1 p.m. on Monday as usual. Hope okay. everyone has a good weekend. Okay, thank you to all of our viewers and thank you very much for people who are still sending us cards of appreciation and small gifts. It's really wonderful. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.